Whether it's running, hiking, biking, golfing, or even working, Curex insoles can help your patients live healthy and active lifestyles. Using the latest medical and biomechanics research, Curex insoles are engineered for unequaled comfort, performance, and injury prevention. With its patented dynamic arch technology that enables the ideal ratio of flexibility and rigidity, Curex insoles properly support the foot and its natural movement for ideal knee and hip alignment. And because no two patients are alike, Curex offers a full line of highly customised insoles available in high, medium and low arch profiles. Learn more about the science behind Curex and sign up for a free sample at medical.curex.us. That's medical.currex.us. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Charting the rehabilitation path of your patients with hip pain can be a complicated process, particularly when it isn't clear-cut whether the best route forward is surgery or conservative care. And so we brought on Dr. Travis Mack to help all of us improve how we treat our patients with hip pain. Dr. Mack is a fellowship-trained sports medicine physician and head orthopedic team physician for the Utah Jazz, as well as associate professor in the Department of Orthopedics at the University of Utah. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. Dr. Mack. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for taking the time. We really, really appreciate coming to chat with us on JSPT Insights. I appreciate the opportunity. We know that surgery for FII is not always indicated. So what kinds of patients should we be referring to you? A lot of hip pain, frankly, is non-surgical. So as you guys know, a lot of athletes get hip pain. They get hip pain for lots of reasons. And the jumping from hip pain to you have FAI is a big jump. And in my opinion, FAI is a bit of a diagnosis of exclusion in the sense that you know, it's sort of something that a lot of people have, as you know, shapes of their hips that are very clear FAI type of shape morphology, but that doesn't mean they necessarily have it. In fact, I have big camps on my hips and labral tears on my hips. The only reason I know that is because I was part of my own research study. And there I had, I was supposed to be a normal patient actually. Uh, and there I was with my cams and, and labral tears. So oddly enough, I've never had hip pain in my life. It highlights the fact that not everybody with labral tears and FAI morphology has hip pain, and therefore not everyone needs surgery. So, uh, and as you guys know, a lot of patients and athletes will go see physical therapists because you know they they their hip hurts and they want to get better. And for me, the biggest issue with FAI and the way you highlight it is really a history, not so much what does their hip look like on X-ray, and not exactly what does it even look like on on a physical exam, but rather how do they present? So the, the way they describe, athletes describe their problem is very, very specific and they're really good at it. So usually the history nails it almost every time. And it's effectively patients who have what the difference between stat, static and dynamic hip pain. And the way I describe that is effectively patients with sitting and squatting pain versus standing and walking pain. So people who have sitting and squatting pain that localizes anteriorly, i.e. in the front of their hip and their groin, that starts to perk my ears a little bit. And that, that moves me down the path of maybe this might be an impingement issue. But interestingly, a lot of people with hip flexor tendonitis can describe the same issue. 
which is, you know, I, I go down and I do a squat and the front of my hip hurts. Well, that doesn't really nail it down. So then you get in a little more detail. So patients that have, for instance, sitting pain for long periods of time. So I just saw one of our hockey players who said, you know, I, my hip hurts and it hurts when I do the butterfly. He's a goalie, not surprisingly, sort of classic. And he does the butterfly stop and his hip hurts. But interestingly, he's not doing the butterfly stop. His hip's fine for the rest of his life. So at that point, it becomes a conversation of, okay, well, we stop doing the butterfly stop and, and maybe that's the answer. Uh, he just, of course, doesn't want to do that. But then you get into the dynamic aspects of what you guys do, which is, can you modify the way you do something without surgery? And usually the answer is yes. So that's when he sees all of you and you guys work your magic, which I always tell my athletes, look, they, they know this stuff way better than I do. So I'm going to send them to that, send you guys to the physical therapists and see if they can help you. And the, usually you do. For me, ultimately, it comes down to if you guys work your magic and you modify the pelvic tilt, you would teach the athletes to not stretch their hip into internal rotation and forward flexion. Sometimes just the simple education that you all provide is the most important thing. But after all of that, if you've done your magic and the patient's still having pain and it's a player who's playing their sport and they can't treat it in any way, at that point, they, they end up in my office. And it doesn't mean they're getting surgery, mind you. It just means maybe we, we take a deeper dive. So what does that deeper dive look like? For me, the deeper dive is first to ask them all the things that they've done. And usually if they've gone through a physical therapist's office who specializes in hip or has an expertise in hip, they've effectively done all of the things that I would ask them to do to try to avoid surgery or avoid further interventions. So what do those further, further interventions look like? Well, first it's plain radiographs are good. So we start with an x-ray and I get a sequence of three very specific x-rays to look at their hip. And if everything there looks normal or if they have cam morphology or pincer morphology so deep socket versus bump on the ball then we say okay this you know you're you're not getting better with non-surgical management but we aren't necessarily saying you need surgery yet x-rays suggest that maybe this might be a problem the next step after that is an mri the purpose of an MRI is to identify whether they have a big labral tear. Again, we know that 40 to 50% of athletes have labral tears, asymptomatic labral tears. So just because they have a labral tear doesn't mean it's their problem. It just, but we also know if you have a labral tear, we know that you are more likely to be symptomatic from that labral tear than someone who doesn't. So just because you have a labral tear doesn't mean you need sur surgery, but it does mean you're more likely to be symptomatic from that than if you don't. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to frankly look at cartilage damage. So a lot of the patients that we treat, I mean, recreational athletes, at the end of the day, my hip might start, start hurting and an x-ray looks fine and you get an MRI and there's some cartilage damage. And so it's early arthritic picture. And at that point, you start to have a different conversation that you know, you can't really treat arthritis with a camera. That's more on the hip replacement or hip resurfacing side. So maybe we just kind of modify your activities and live to fight another day. But if their cartilage looks great on MRI, they have a labral tear that's suggestive of potential symptomatology. And now we get a three-dimensional evaluation. Then we're getting further down that line. The step after that is an injection. And for me, that's a super important part of this because athletes always think, and, and recreational athletes of all ages always think you're trying to mask their pain with injections. So what I tell them is this is not a treatment injection necessarily. This is an injection that we're really trying to identify a diagnosis. Turns out, while you can't tell someone if they get pain relief from a numbing, numbing medication to their hip, that it's going to correlate with a great result from surgery, you can tell them if they get no pain relief from an injection into their hip joint, if their hips hurting with, with numbing medication, that surgery is probably not going to help them. In other words, the negative predictive value is very high. So for me, that's a very important part of my diagnostic algorithm. So I tell my patients and athletes, look, 
it, it looks like FAI. We really think this is the problem, but let's nail it before we do surgery. And the way we do that is you go home and you do everything you try not to do. So go home and do all those things that make your hip hurt a lot. And once it's really angry, come on in. We'll put a little numbing medication in your hip and see if it takes your pain away. And it may not even have steroids. Sometimes I'll do purely diagnostic numbing medication, anesthetic injection. And if it takes their pain away temporarily, and I tell them, you're going to love me for about two to three hours and then hate me that night, because <laughs> for a second, your hip's going to feel incredible, and then it's going to all come rushing back. And if that happens, it nails the diagnosis. And at that point, you start to consider surgical management. Obviously, there are variations in the type of techniques that you can perform during surgery for these types of patients. But can you get into some of the most common techniques that that you do, are there techniques that are falling out of favor that you maybe don't recommend doing anymore? Because really understanding what goes into surgery is going to help us on the post-operative side uh, make better rehab decisions. The, the first thing I think that we'll ha that I've been doing probably for the last three to four years, but it's becoming more consistent now, is postless hip arthroscopy. In the past, in my early years, um, I've been doing this for over a decade now, but in my first, say, five years of practice, we used what's called posted hip arthroscopy, meaning we put the, and forgive the description, it's a little graphic, but we put the patients on a, on a tra traction table and we put a very, very well-padded post basically in the groin, er groin area, protecting all the important structures in that area, and then put the boots in something that looks akin to a ski boot, effectively on both of their feet, and then pull gentle pressure to allow the hip to pull away from the ball to pull away from the socket to allow us enough room to work. We did some research on that though. And it turns out if you're really careful in asking your patients, what kind of numbness they may have after surgery, upwards of 25 to 30% have some degree of numbness related to the traction. So it turns out if you pull really hard, hard on a leg for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, which is, you know, people say keep traction under two hours. I, I try to keep it under 45 minutes to an hour. And even with that, we had 25 to 30% of people having either groin numbness, which really people don't like dorsal foot numbness. So what we've done and transitioned to is something called postless hip arthroscopy. Effectively, what we have now is a very, very well padded, almost like a microphone pad, like you'd have on your bed, uh, covering your bed. And it's high friction, but very comfortable. And literally the patient just lays on it. And that allows enough friction because of their body to allow us to gently pull, pull their hip just far enough apart to do the surgery. And all of that numbness disappeared post-operative course, they have less pain, they have no numbness or tingling of the groin area or the side of their thigh going down their leg. Uh, a lot of those post-operative issues we're all dealing with have been effectively eliminated. So that's the first thing. The second technique that we've talked about that's a little bit going out of favor is addressing the hip flexor tendon. So in the past, and I would argue 10 to 15 years ago, we didn't really know what the pain generator was. So we'd go in there and prepare the labrum. And at that time, even cut debris the labrum, fancy word for cut out part of it. So don't do that anymore. Uh, now we repair it. And then we'd sort of loosen up the hip flexor tendon, especially with athletes that had snapping hip to try to make the hip not snap. Turns out research, uh, you know, the more you know about something, the real more you know you didn't know before. And what we found out is the hip flexor tendon, number one, it's important, lifts, lifts the hip up, you know, you kind of need that. Uh, second thing is the patients that were getting snapping hip needed that hip flexor to function as a dynamic stabilizer. So a lot of the patients that were having both impingement and snapping hip were a little bit on the stretchier side. So they were a little bit hypermobile, more dancers, gymnasts, et cetera. And that hip flexor effectively was doing double duty. It was not only lifting their leg up, but it was also keeping the 
femoral head, the ball of the hips, stable in the socket as well. So it turns out cutting it or lengthening it because it sounds better surgically was not a great idea. And, and they started to get more pain and more instability. And, and it wasn't a good thing. It actually ended up having not a great outcome. And again, we didn't know that at the time. It wasn't a desired outcome, obviously. But we did learn some things, which is number one, cutting the hip flexor tendon, not a great idea. While we were doing it in upwards of 50% of our patients 15 years ago, I'd probably say the last time I did one of those was about four years ago. And it was in a patient who had a total hip replacement. So the hip replacement itself was causing the problem. So it was a doctor-induced problem as opposed to just a, the way you were built problem. So that's something that's gone out of favor. The third thing I tell you, and this impacts your comment about what do you do postoperatively, is how to address the capsule. The capsule is the lining of the hip. It's the thing that we open up to do the surgery and then sew it back up. But more specifically, it's a ligament. And it's actually the strongest ligament in the body. It's called the wide ligament of Bigelow or the iliofemoral ligament. And while we don't cut it completely, we do partially cut that ligament. And historically, folks were just kind of saying, yeah, it'll heal up itself. Well, that's gone out of favor too, especially in a lot of this more mobile pa patients, like the one I described before, the dancers, the gymnasts, et cetera. So we now sew that back up. So we repair the capsule after we open it up and cut it. Now we sew it back together. One of the questions that physical therapists should ask the surgeons, if possible, is did you repair the capsule? So if the answer is no, it, it's okay. And some evidence would suggest that there are times where you do, don't necessarily have to, but that does put a patient potentially at risk for instability. So you really want to avoid extra rotation, mobilization in the first three months to let that capsule heal in. Honestly, even in my patients where I sew it up with very, very, very strong stitches, I still tell the patients and my physical therapy protocol says, avoid forced external rotation, avoid hip extension. So bring that hip past neutral for the first three months. Now, admittedly, it's controlled scarring. So that does create a degree of limited external rotation extension by that three-month mark, but that's where you guys work your magic. The, the patients start forcibly externally rotating their hips at that time, and it stretches itself out over that three to six-month period. But it's a very important thing. Also, if they repaired it and the patient comes into you guys, which is usually when they, they actually talk about things and they say, you know, I, I was doing great, but like six weeks ago, I was, you know, I did something I maybe I wasn't should have, and I was playing around. I felt this pop in my groin and it's been hurting. Well, that pop was probably a stitch, actually, probably not scar tissue. Uh, uh, next thing you know, the question is, did you pop out those stitches that repaired your capsule? It may not be the end of the world. It probably doesn't need you have to jump back in and do surgery, but it's a very important thing to know about. What about like your classic, like femoral head osteotomy, labral repair? Can you just give us like a quick and dirty, what are you cutting through? What are you putting sure. in there? Like typically, sure. um, because I think that that just kind of helps PTs like understand kind of how we make our rehab decisions then too. Absolutely. So a couple things. It's a femoral head osteochondroplasty. Osteotomy is a little different. Thank just, you. Just a comment. Osteotomy, it, we do do that too, actually, which is why, why I specify. So a, it, it leads me down a little different path, but I'll bring it back, okay? So a femoral head osteotomy is it's actually a femoral head neck osteotomy, which is actually taking a saw and cutting the neck and reorienting the ball. 
Um, and we do it in people who have sh sockets that are too shallow. So acetabular dysplasia or so shallow socket. And sometimes the ball of the hip is pointing too far vertically, like straight up as opposed to in, and it makes them unstable. So in those patients, sometimes we will do what's called a periacetabular osteotomy, i.e. deepen the socket by cutting the socket and also cut the ball to reorient it. So that's the femoral osteotomy that you mentioned. I know it's not what you meant, but we do do that. So it's something that's an important part of this. The osteoplasty or osteochondroplasty is taking the, something that looks not, a, not that different than a Dremel burr, actually, and effectively shaping down the bump on the ball. So I describe it to patients, and I really, it's kind of how I think about it, is effectively you have a knot on a log, and you don't want the knot. So you, you get some sandpaper or a Dremel burr, and you reshape the knot on the log till it's round. And that's kind of what we do. So the femoral head should look like a microphone. It's effectively a ball on a dowel. So we effectively use the Dremel burr to reshape or reestablish the roundness of the ball or the sphericity of the femoral head and neck. So that's the ball part of it. Now, how do we do it? I'll take you through it really quickly. Effectively, we use these little keyhole incisions. They're about one centimeter or so. We use a camera to do it. Gently open the ball in the socket using that postless technology I told you about before. And we open it about six, seven millimeters. It's not much at all. Patients will say you're dislocating my hip. And technically, they may be right, but not in the sense that they think, I think. Then we gently come into their hip with these little five millimeter trocars. So it's a little tube basically that we can instrument through. And then we use a, a small blade, which is an arthroscopic scalpel through that little tiny, tiny tube. And we open up the capsule and partially the ligament, but not much of it actually. We do very, very small capsulotomies now so as to not injure that ligament. And then that allows us to gain access to the hip and let us do what we need to do. The next step typically is to repair the labrum. And the way we do it is identify where it's torn off of the socket. So the labrum's an O-ring. Basically, it's just a round O-ring around the hip and it forms both a stabilizing as well as suction effect of the hip. And when it tears, it doesn't form its job as well. So at that point, we repair where it's torn. The way we do it is with little tiny anchors. And I use mine uh, in a knotless fashion because I don't like to tie knots in the hip because it forms a ball, of t a ball, a big ball of uh, suture inside the joint, which then everything can scar to. And newer, newer technology allows us not to have to do any of that. So now we can pass a stitch, which is very, it's, it almost looks like a shoelace. So it's sort of wide and thin. So it lays right down on the labrum so it doesn't cut through it. It's not sharp. And it, then we drill a tiny little hole about two millimeters in the socket. We take that stitch that's around the labrum where it's torn, and we effectively reattach it to the socket through this little tiny anchor, which is made out of something called peak or biocomposite, which is so it's not metal, no, no metal detectors go off or anything like that. And it allows us to take that stitch and attach it directly to the bone. And we do that three or four times to repair the labrum, depending on how big it is. Now, there are circumstances where the labrum is so destroyed that you can't do that. And then the next step is something called a labral reconstruction. And that's literally building a new labrum out of tissues from somewhere else. And it's either from cadaver or allograft or from your own tissue. Typically, we use allograft just because it's an easier recovery without any downside. And in that case, we do the same concept, which is use those anchors to repair it. But instead of repairing the labrum, we're bringing in new tissue and re literally rebuilding the labrum entirely. Now, interestingly, that doesn't really affect, in my opinion, the post-operative outcome, the, or, or nor does it affect the, the post-operative therapy that's required, physical therapy. It's the same protocol. The only protocol change would be something where we do cartilage transplantation. 
So in a young person, we can actually protect their cartilage. So for instance, if I have a, uh, one of my 18, 19 year old big cam basketball players, hockey players, sometimes you'll get into their hip and they'll have actually sheared off the cartilage from the socket, the acetabulum. And that's a really big problem in a very young person. So one of the newer techniques that we can do, and we've pioneered this at the University of Utah and elsewhere, is taking the cartilage off of the cam deformity. So that's the bump on the ball. Turns out it does have cartilage on it. Now it doesn't have cartilage you need, and it's actually not supposed to be there. Uh, we actually take it away normally when we're doing the surgery, but in this case, you can use it. So you can harvest that cartilage from the ball where you're going to remove it anyway. But before you remove it, you can actually take it, save it, and then retransplant it back into the socket. And that allows us to protect that pothole that the athlete created by slamming the ball into the socket. So we transplant that in at the same time. Once we do that, then we put the ball back in the socket. Then we remove the big bump of bone. And now the cartilage has gone off of it because we already used it. So instead of sacrificing that cartilage, we transplant it and then reshape the bump so that it no longer impinges. Um, that would change the post-operative course in the sense that in that case, I have them toe-touch weight bear. So instead of all of my athletes and patients that have FAI surgery, I let them weight bear as tolerated. Crutches for comfort, weight bear is tolerated, irrespective of what I do to the labrum. It doesn't matter. The labrum is not a weight bearing structure, so it does not cause any problem to weight bear immediately after hip surgery, excepting cartilage. So cartilage is a weight bearing structure. So for them, that's toe touch weight bearing for about four weeks, transitioning off the crutches by six. So that's the only caveat. Anything that you want PTs to know when we're treating like your hip patients or patients with this FAI? Two things. The first thing I will say is, thank, first of all, thank you all for all you do. Uh, you make our lives much easier. The second thing is don't hesitate for a second to think that referring a patient to a surgeon is a failure of any sort. Don't think for a second that a surgeon is going to be angry if you send them something and it's not surgical. In fact, if they are, by the way, don't send them to them ever again, because that, we're a team. We're a team. And sometimes, as you guys know, they just need to hear they don't need surgery from a surgeon to actually start paying attention to doing their physical therapy. And that's fine. You know, in a similar fashion, sometimes I, I'm sorry for this, sometimes I will send patients to you all just so that they actually believe me. Patellofemoral pain, for instance, I'll say you need physical therapy. They say it won't work. I'm like, look, these people train for a long time. Okay. And like, I can do it on my own. No, you can't. You have, you have to go and learn what to do. Same thing on the hip side of things. If you feel like the patient either is not engaged with you and what you're doing for them, or they don't believe you, or they, they got an MRI somewhere because they didn't believe you, it showed a labral tear. And now they're convinced that there's nothing you can do to help them because their labral tear has to have surgery. Then fine refer them. I will tell them exactly what you tell them, which is I have labral tears. My hips don't hurt. Okay. So there's a 50, 50 shot, flip a coin that all of a sudden your hips started hurting. And you got an MRI and showed a labral tear. Like literally it was a 50, 50 shot. In fact, your other hip, there's a 50, 50 shot. That one that doesn't hurt has a labral tear. So don't get surgery, go back and do the physical therapy that you, you'd attempted for like two weeks and you're convinced isn't helping and actually go to it. And I tell them it's like going to class. If you go to the teacher and the teacher teaches you something and they give you homework and you don't study, you don't do the homework and you go back to the class and you flunk the test and you're convinced your teacher sucks, it's not the teacher. So sometimes that communication is really important. I'm not operating on them, but we're still treating the, the patient, the athlete. And if it's just enough to get them to actually buy into what you're doing, that serves the purpose.
The second thing is if a patient is like three months out from surgery and they're really co complaining of their, you're trying to return to run because at three months, I let my athletes do whatever they want. Like it's no holds barred. Any, and no matter what I do from a hip arthroscopy surgery, intra-articular for FAI, cartilage or otherwise, at three months, they're released to do whatever they want. But I tell them, I let you do whatever you want. You may not feel up to it. That's going to be up to you and your physical therapist to know when you're ready to do something. So then they start to run and their hip starts hurting. It gets flared up. Their hip flexor gets irritated. They feel like they're, they're stiff legged. They can't bring the leg behind their back. It's just, they, they just can't do a normal gait. It's almost always stiffness of the capsule due to the fact that I sewed it up really tightly because I don't want them to get unstable and they just weren't able to stretch it out normally. Because again, I won't let them stretch it for about three months anyway. The best test you can do is the butterfly stretch. So have them put their feet together, bring it toward their groin and drop their knees to the ground. So if you do it and you do that exact exam maneuver and just look at them, you'll see that their hip scope surgery side, the knee will be higher up off the floor than the other knee. They'll be sitting like this with one knee up in the air and they're like, that's all I can go. That's it. And you show that to them and you say, you see how you, that knee is way higher than the other one? Like, yeah, I know. It's really annoying. Like, well, the good news is that's your problem. It's because the capsules tighten the front so it won't let the knee fall out. So at that point, they do two stretches. The butterfly stretch, do that. Like, I'm going to rip it out. You won't. It's too tight. You need to stretch out the scar tissue. It's fine. So that's stretch number one. The stretch number two is the lunge stretch or runner stretch. So the hip surgery leg behind them the non-surgical leg in front of them and push the pelvis forward. They'll feel that same stretching sensation in the front and just tell them those are the two things. You've got to stretch that out. As long as it's tight, you're effectively a little bit arthrofibrotic. Your hip's too tight, too stiff. It's too irritable. Once you stretch that out, it will feel normal. Your pain will go away. And that is, that is the key. Dr. Mack, for, for listeners that hear this and they want to reach out and ask questions, how do they get a hold of you? You can actually go straight to my website if you want. Um, okay. You can do immediate contact there. It's uh, www.hipandkneepreservation.com or just travismacmd.com. Either of those are fine. A big thank you to Dr. Mack for taking the time to sit down with us and share his knowledge and insight. And as always, we want to thank you for listening to JWSPT Insights. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.